Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Before we start today's episode, I just need to announce the winner of last week's giveaway. This person is winning a $50 gift card thanks to Running Warehouse. They both entered on the review of our podcast by sending us the email of the screenshot and they also entered via YouTube. So the double down worked. Uh, the winner is Dan Morse. And here is what he said about the podcast. The Doctors of Running podcast gives thoughtful running shoe insights and advice as they dive into topics such as what makes a running shoe fit well. Their love for running is evident. Um, so thanks, Dan, for that feedback and the kind words. It was fun this week to hear from all of you who have been listening to what we're doing and just hearing some of the encouraging things that you've enjoyed. So thanks again for your for your feedback and entering the contest. I'm sure we'll do more in the future. He also commented on YouTube his best fitting shoe ever, which was the Nike Flex Run in 2014. So Dan, congratulations. $50 gift card coming your way. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Doctors of Running Virtual Roundtable, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and the science to the stuff that we're putting on our feet. Today, you can see if you're watching on YouTube that I am solo at this non-existent roundtable, so I could walk all the way around and sit down without touching anybody. Uh, but that's for a good reason. Today, we had the privilege of sitting down with Dr. Laurent Malizo. He is a researcher and PhD at the Luxembourg Institute of Health. Matt was able to sit down with him. He woke up super early, 5 a.m., to sit down with uh, Dr. Malizo uh, to talk about shoes, injury, and his research that he's performing. We reference uh, Dr. Malizo's stuff a lot around here. One of those would be when we talk about uh, the potential for shoe rotations to decrease risk of injury. That is from him. And so we are privileged to be hearing from him today. So I'm going to kick you over to that interview very soon. But before I do, we are going to do our subjective for the week. And this week's question is, if you could have any guest come join the roundtable, who would it be? So that could be an athlete. It could be somebody from a certain running shoe company. It could be a researcher. You reach out to us, tell us who you want us to get on this podcast, and we'll do what we can to make it happen. We'd love to hear what you have for that subjective. But now I'm going to kick it over to Matt and Dr. Malazo. Everyone, welcome to the Doctors Running uh, Virtual Roundtable. I'm Matt. Happy to have Laura Malazo here today, Dr. Laura Malazo, who we at Doctors Running spend a lot of time looking at research and referring to research. And there's certain people that we notice we continue to cite who continue to put out phenomenal research. And we are lucky enough today to have him come on the show and be able to talk with us a little bit. So, Laurent, again, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time as you're in a totally different time zone. But give us a little introduction to who you are in terms of your background, where you are, your position, some of your own running history, any personal history, anything you think might be important in this conversation. Thank you, Matt, for this uh, introduction. And first, thank you very much for, for having me here in this podcast. I really like uh, having this opportunity to talk about my research um, uh, to, I would say, non-experts <laughs> in, in the topic, um, because most of the time as researcher, we 
we are, we fear to be uh, disconnected from real world, and that's good for us to to have the opportunity to to discuss and to talk about our research to um, many people. So maybe a, a bit of background about me. I'm a sports scientist. I did my master and PhD at the University of Louvain in Belgium. It's about 30 kilometers to the south from Brussels. Um, I should say that I have a multidisciplinary background, actually. During my PhD, I investigated the heterogeneity and plasticity of uh, human muscle fibers. So it included several aspects like uh, mechanical testing of single fibers. So that's already biomechanics applied to human muscle fibers. And it also includes the analysis of um, um, uh, isoform composition of the contractile proteins, such as the myosin heavy change, um, the troponin, chitin, one of the biggest uh, protein in the muscle uh, cells. And during that period, I also developed some expertise in uh, exercise physiology through testing of athletes in our lab. And then I acquired new knowledge in sports injury prevention, running biomechanics, epidemiology, physical activity and health over the last years uh, here in Luxembourg. Um, well, I'm currently located, I'm a cross-border worker, actually. I'm, I live in Belgium and uh, I worked in Luxembourg uh, at the Luxembourg Institute of Health. This is one of the great things in Europe uh, and with the European Union. I crossed the border uh, twice a day and I've never been controlled over the last 10 years. Um, and I do not lose time at the border, so it's why it's really convenient. Um, currently, I'm the leader of the Physical Activity Sports and Health Research Group, which is part of the Department of Precision Health. Um, we have two main research lines the understanding, prediction, and prevention of uh, sports injury in general, and more specifically in running, of course. And the second research line is uh, measurement of physical activity um, and uh, relationship with health conditions. Actually, our institution is moving towards more transversal, uh, translational research. And we all know that the role of physical activity should not be overlooked uh, when looking at uh, the impact uh, of people's health. Um, so, yeah, we have a role to play in that department, uh, in this context, of course. Uh, so, let's go into running. Um, I, actually, I don't have a great experience in running. Uh, actually, I'm almost two meters tall. Uh, so, I played volleyball for more than 20 years, uh, with uh, five, six seasons in the top leagues in Belgium. Then I had to stop playing because of some... Uh, uh, lower back problems and I did a lot of uh, road cycling for a few years and when I started my postdoc at Luxembourg in Luxembourg I, I did not have much time uh, for sport anymore so uh, running was a quite efficient way to stay fit and then started the third chapter of my uh, sport history um, my wife participated in some uh, trail running events and she convinced me to uh, to do some races with her. It was quite challenging, actually, because she's quite good. And uh, if the distance is too short and with um, uh, limited uh, positive denivelation, then it's quite difficult to, to finish before her. <laughs> so I'm challenged there. <laughs> um, so far, my longest distance is uh, 75 kilometers, but I prefer it, it was in the Swiss Alps. So I prefer doing trail running in, in mountain. Actually. Um, 
yeah, regarding running, I have I have a quite funny story to tell. Um, so I worked for a few years in a in a private company um, as a sports scientist, and uh, I was testing and advising many runners at that time. So I thought that I should participate uh, in a marathon to get the experience of the whole process from preparation to recovery. And uh, when I finished the marathon, I was uh, just destroyed. I couldn't walk anymore. <laughs> um, so uh, I went for you know a free message a ma- massage uh, offered by the uh, organization and and then the physio asked me if I was experienced in running um, and I just replied that it was the very first race uh, in running uh, and it was true and then his face became very red and he started shouting. Um, this was this is not serious you could have died and so on uh, and then i gave more details about my uh, my six month preparation uh, program and, and my professional background so just to say that out of context just a few words are just meaningful meaningless um but it, it was it was quite funny to see his reaction when i said it's the first time i touch a bib to my t-shirt <laughs> Sounds like I you think it's it was the first time you ran too. <laughs> That's funny. So, th- th- Laurent, again, thank you so much for coming on. You have such an extensive history. You're very, also very humble to say that you are a newer runner, and yet you're out there doing up to 75 kilometers and competing. And I'm in a similar situation where my my wife is a professional runner, and if I'm not careful, she will frequently run me down. In uh, during easy runs, which we participate t- together in, and during workouts, and sometimes ra- not yet races, but she's getting close, so she's right there. So let's let's dive in to some of the stuff on shoes. And so you talked about translation research, which is something that is so important, especially as clinicians, because we often get research that's done very much in a laboratory setting, and that's trying to the applicability and validity in terms of being able to to translate that into the clinical practice is sometimes a little bit challenging, which is where the idea of translational research going, how can we get good research that we can really use in quote unquote, the real world. And so I have to, you know, I'm, I'm a little biased having read your research and gone, this is phenomenal translational research. And I'm, I'm so happy to have you on here. Um, but that's, I think, a perfect segue into talking about some of the stuff on shoes. So there's a lot of changes in the foot world that have happened recently and with that there's also a lot of things that have been either marketing or you know ideas that people have had about running shoes and different parts of them that we've kind of found to not necessarily be what we thought and so i think one of the biggest places i'd like to start is with shoe cushioning so everybody's talking about how important cushioning is and all these different factors how it's related to injuries so let's go into, first of all, from your background and your, your perspective, what is shoe cushioning? How would you define that? Um, first, I would like to, to get back to something you, you said earlier. Uh, you are totally right. Um, everybody has his own opinion about uh, running shoes, running, uh, shoe technology, and there are so many uh, popular beliefs and, and, and myths. Um, and we realized when we dig deeper into the literature, we realized that actually, yeah, in terms of translation to the runners, what what has really been done on uh, the impact of this the shoe on the athletes, the runners' health, it was so limited. 
that's how we, why we, we, we decide or we wish to do more research on that topic. Um, so, uh, yeah, you asked me about cushioning. Um, Actually, I anticipated this question <laughs> and, uh, and the definition, and I looked at the uh, Cambridge Dictionary, and we should start from the, the, the basic definition, which is to make the effect or force of something softer. Then if we apply um, the definition to the context of running shoes, we could say that cushioning is um, the capacity of the shoe to absorb uh, the force of an impact. So. Cushioning is about the impact, so the very first part of the ground contact phase. Um, usually a, an alternative name for cushioning system is simply shock absorption system. And uh, with that regard, uh, the best approach to define the cushioning properties of a shoe is to define the stiffness, which is the extent to which an object resists uh, deformation response uh, to a force applied. So, so for a given force applied to the heel of, uh, by the heel to the shoe, a greater deformation of the sole will be observed below the heel in a softer shoe. This is exactly the purpose of a standard impact test um, used to characterize the, the, the shoe properties, for instance, using a, an impactor to see whether, how the material is deformed with a given force applied. This is, I would say, a general definition of cushioning. Got it. And so cushioning, a lot of people throw the term around protection, right? You use that in a different word, but you know, what is in, in what is the purpose of having, you, you mentioned what the purpose of having cushioning is, but when we hear protection, what does protection mean? And does it really protect us from these forces? Um, let's go step by step. Um, so globally, the, the main effect of more cushioning in running biomechanics are first a decrease in the impact peak force, second, a longer time to impact peak, so the, this impact peak appear later. A consequence of that is that uh, there is also a decrease in loading rate, so in the rate at which this uh, the force increased, and of course there is a greater deformation of the cushioning material. This is the the effect of more cushioning in the shoe on biomechanics. Then, what does protection mean um, in the context of cushioning? I would like to refer to the paper by uh, Richard. I don't remember his first name. It was uh, published in uh, BGSM in 2008. I'm sure that you read it. Um, it's one of the very first paper uh, on, on the relationship between running shoe features and injury risk. And the author stated that the use of cushioning in running shoes is based on four assumptions. The first is that impact force are a significant cause of injury in running. And I could only agree on that condition. If impact force do not cause injury, why should we worry about them? The second assumption is that running on hard surface um, is a cause of high impact force. So in other words, impact forces depend on the surface, the stiffness of the surface. The third assumption is strongly related to the second and say that a cushioning shoe can reduce impact forces. 
So this assumption has been challenged because of the impact peak paradox. I guess we will talk about that later. And the fourth assumption is that the potential of the cushioning solution to cause an injury is slower than the protective effect. So an example of potential drawback of cushioning is food stability. There is some evidence that food pronation is increased in softer surface. While okay, pronation is a natural movement, it's not an issue for the food, but too much cushioning may generate overpronation that is beyond the natural movement of the food. So it may create, induce a higher risk in some condition. So in summary, the protective effect of cushioning suggests that cushioning decreases injury risk via the reduction of impact forces. And usually researchers and clinicians consider that the most obvious protective effect should be observed in stress fracture, because it's a fracture, uh, uh, an injury directly related to impact on, the, on the, the tissue. But we should not forget that muscles also play an active role in shock absorption. So other injuries may also be related to impact force and therefore may also be prevented with uh, cushioning. But I am really cautious here because um, there is a lack of prospective study on the association between impact force, cushioning and specific type of injury. And that's really important to remember that we, you know, this, this area is evolving and a lot of, as you mentioned earlier, some of the myths or beliefs about running shoes, we have to be very cautious with what we say because there's a lot of stuff we just don't know or we haven't found things connect as well as we might have thought. And I think one of the things that you just mentioned, talking about impact peaks, which is when you are generally, this is based with a, a heel strike initial contact, when you first land on the ground, if you're looking at a force curve, what generally happens is the impact force slowly increases and then there's a big spike that happens and that's the impact peak. And then it comes and then it continues onwards. That's usually associated with a heel strike and for a long time, it was thought that that might be one of the significant factors associated with injury just because of how large it was. But can you go into how that wasn't found to be as connected as we might think? Uh, first, um, I have to say, when we looked at the curves from the uh, 800 runners we, we tested a few years ago, we realized that actually the pattern is, can be so different from one runner to another one. So it's really heterogeneous. The, the, I mean, the, the shape of the curve. And also within one given subject, you may also have a large heterogeneity from one step to the other one, which really make our analysis really, really I mean, we did not anticipate that problem. So we, we had to take into account different things and add other variables in our analysis because to take that variability into account. Now, uh, yeah, there, there was a, a, a problem with this impact peak, or a, it has been named as the impact peak paradox or impact peak anomaly. And um, I try to explain it, uh, although it's not easy without slides and, and in graphs. So in short, in vitro, uh, I already explained the effect of cushioning. So in vitro, low impact force are observed in softer or more compliant uh, shoes. This is typically what is observed when testing shoes with an impactor. That's purely mechanics. But in vivo, when you study the effect of shoe cushioning on the vertical ground reaction force, we observe 
many studies observe that impact peak force is higher when running in softer shoes. And we also observe this paradox in, in our study. And this uh, impact peak uh, paradox or anomaly was first explained by Martin Shorten and Martin Minches. And they explained that actually the impact peak is the uh, in the vertical ground traction force, what you observe with, uh, when a runner is, uh, put his foot on, on, on the force plate. Uh, it's composed of a high frequency load, the true impact peak, or the true impact uh, component, and a low frequency load, which is not related to impact. And after isolation of the high frequency signal, softer shoes attenuate the magnitude of the high frequency impact peak. So this is consistent with in vitro uh, study. And on top of that, softer shoes also delay this high frequency impact peak. The paradox is actually a consequence of this delayed true impact peaks, as the attenuate high frequency load is summed with a low frequency load of greater magnitude, because the low frequency load increases later. So in other words, while the true impact peak of the high frequency signal is decreased, it's also delayed. So the observed impact peak on the vertical ground reduction force, so the, the whole signal, may be increased because of the contribution of the low frequency loads. So it's combination of the two curves and the timing of the impact peak, the true impact peak, that makes this uh, this paradox. It's so, so one of the things that this is sounding like is, you know, we've tried in the, the footwear industry has tried to go, hey, we can, I'm going to use a term, but I hope our listeners don't hold on to this. But the term that the running industry uses is that we're going to try to absorb impact. We're going to try to get rid of these forces. And some of the basic principles of physics, you can't really get rid of those. And so we're seeing, instead of getting rid of the, you know certain things, you're really just seeing it shift in a different way. So instead of, what do you, what do you think? Say, I would not say so, actually. Okay. We, the, the, the paradox is due to the fact that we don't look at the right signal. If you Got specifically okay. look at the high frequency signal, then you observe this decrease in impact peak, the delay in the impact, in the impact peak, a lower loading rate too. Um, and that's actually what you observed in the recent um, publication, uh, a paper that was published in Frontiers. I don't know if you, if you read it. Um, so in short, uh, we, uh, we demonstrate that um, the runners with longer time to impact peak and those with lower loading rate on the high frequency signal at lower injury risk. So we showed that if the cushioning does what it's supposed to do, then it can contribute to uh, decreasing the, the injury risk. And we observed that greater cushioning decreased this impact peak on the high frequency signal. It also decreased the loading rate and it increased the time to impact peak. So it really shows that um, when you looked at the right signal, the high frequency signal, then the results are consistent with the in vitro uh, tests. And the paradox you observed in in vivo measurement when looking at the vertical ground reaction force signal without decomposition in high and low frequency, it's just, um, let's say, 
the 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 signal the observation the the vertical ground direction force is biased by the low frequency component that's another okay. way to present got it so one of the, one of the things that i'm hearing from this is that you know so there was some research that questioned whether large, more cushioning was actually doing what it was purported to do but what your research found was no it 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 can it's just got to be able to do it the right way to make the effect that we want Exactly. And so and this is one of the ch challenges in research is making sure you're looking at the right variables, which as a newer and younger uh, clinician and now somebody trying to become a researcher, I am listening very closely to that because I'm getting ready to do my own research and I really want to make sure I'm measuring the right things. Yeah, and I guess many of us are, are doing the same error. Uh, th this paper by uh, Shorten and Minchus was published, if I remember well, in 2015 or 16. And then... Uh, so I, I knew it, and and still, we we did the analysis as most of the runners, the, most of the researchers on on the vertical ground direction force signal, and we observed that paradox. So there are two conclusions. First, you cannot trust this impact peak from the vertical ground direction force signal. So the results are as they are. You cannot trust that impact peak. But the second conclusion is that if you want to dig deeper and get the right information about effect of cushioning on impact force, then you have to apply appropriate approach. And the, uh, the, the one suggested by uh, uh, Shorten and Minchus is, is one of them, force decomposition. There are other approach, or at least one other approach. And, um, and, and research has to, 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 to be very careful with the way they address impact force when they investigate the effect of cushioning. And so when we when we talk about cushioning, you you were we did a great job of defining that earlier, but there's also a lot of different properties that go into shoe cushioning, whether it's the durometer or the, the stiffness of the material, the amount of stack height. So what are some major factors that you've seen that seem to influence these properties and how do they affect biomechanics? That's a very, very important question, and uh, actually something that the, the engineer uh, in uh, the, the shoe manufacturer, our partner, um, he, he came back to that topic uh, several times to make sure that I properly understand how to present things uh, in, in the paper. Um, in short, shock absorption properties or the cushioning properties uh, of the shoe mainly result from two features. The material used in the sole and the geometry of the shoe. So the material can include different types of foam with different density or different structure and combinations of materials. For instance, you can have uh, gel, air, thermoplastic plates, and so on. And then the geometry of the shoe is mainly defined by the thickness, so the stack height. And here we like to clarify a very important point that you already uh, addressed, the durometer only provide an estimation of the hardness of the foam. However, the foam is only one of the components of the shoe and an evaluation based on the durometer does not take uh, the stack height into account. So let's say that we have two shoe models with exactly the same foam, the same accuracy value for this foam, but with one centimeter difference in stack height, then we'll have a large difference in shop absorption properties. So in the stiffness of the shoe. So 
yeah, the material and the geometry and the durometer is not the right approach to define the global uh, cushioning property of a shoe. Again, this goes back to just being cautious with what variables you're latching onto. And so knowing that there's many different components here, we've seen a lot of individuals who, you know, I've had patients that go and they'll bring shoes and they've got a little force gauge and they'll be testing the durometer. But remembering that it's, it's the culmination of all these variables and how they're working together not just one, it sounds like, although one may play a role, it's knowing how everything works together. That's really, really important. Um, so I'd like to uh, jump to change paths here really quickly. One of the studies that really caught our attention, and this goes back to clinical and again, addressing myths and stereotypes, is you had a great study that looked at shoe cushioning influencing the injury risk in relation to body mass. And some of the stereotypes, and these are actually questions that we get at least once a week from people emailing us. I was going, you know, the stereotype that thinking that larger runners tend to have greater injury risk. So you took that and had a phenomenal number of subjects, which I, as again, as a new reacher, look, looking at your subject number and going, oh my goodness, how did you get that many subjects? But that might be a, a different conversation. But I'm curious, what if there's, was there any other background that led to you wanting to do this study? And what, you know, and yeah, so let's start with that. Uh, first, how we get the five, the, the eight hundred runners, I don't know, but actually we tested them in the lab for five months for from seven to seven every day. So it was a really huge one oh of fraud. <laughs> yeah. For anybody was, that doesn't, doesn't understand the amount of work that goes into this research is, is, it's very difficult to quantify for anybody that's not done any research. Like, again, the, you're... That's amazing. Thank you for all you do. That's what Dr. Malazzo goes through to get this information, by the way. So thank you. And, and yeah, it, it was, uh, there are two things. First is the, the, the amount of work. Um, for example, testing all these subjects, as I said, 12 hours per day for, for, for five months. But also the, the, the timeline for such studies before the, or between the, the start of the preparation of the protocol to the first publication, it was uh, three years actually. So you can understand why this is this may be one of the explanations why the industry do not invest so much into that topic, because uh, if you want to pre to work on the, on on the future shoe, um, you cannot wait for three years to get the results. And that's a real, a real challenge for, for the shoe industry, I can understand. So to answer your questions, um, the background we had, actually at that time, when we prepared the study, we didn't know much on the relationship between shoe cushioning and injury risk. And uh, to me, this lack of knowledge was really surprising. Uh, I mean, the, the runners make their choice considering both performance and potential role in injury prevention. Medical doctors and physios give recommendations about running shoes. And what's the evidence? I bet today you cannot find 10 randomized trials uh, on the effect of some shoe features on injury risk in runners. So, yeah, background very limited. Um, so we, we did a, a, a few trials on shoe features, cushioning, motion control, uh, heel-to-toe drop. Um, 
okay, the trials on motion control systems and, and should drop are a bit out of topic here, but in summary, they show that they may play a role in injury risk. And the most important information for me is that the, actually the effect depends on the profile of the runner. But of course, these results have still to be confirmed and we need to, we need to know more about the specificity of the, uh, the population that may benefit from specific shoe features and so on. Regarding, more specifically regarding cushioning, we did a first study in 2012 um, where we investigated the effect of shoe cushioning on injury risk. But we, at that time, we did not observe uh, any effect of cushioning. And we thought that, well, this is amazing news. Cushioning doesn't matter. But there were some limitations um, that uh, have to be presented here. First, the difference in shoe stiffness between the two shoe conditions was quite limited. It was about 15 person, if not so much. And then the sample size was uh, quite small. Uh, there were 250 runners uh, included in the analysis. And for this type of analysis, it's a, a bit limited. So the what we call the statistical power was not so high. This is the main reason why we decided to do a, a new study on shoe cushioning. Um, but in short, in 2016, when we started uh, working on the design of the study, there was only one trial on the topic. So the, there was very limited evidence on, on, on the role of shoe cushioning system on injury prevention. That, that gives me a small panic attack to hear you say that 250 people is low powered, but that's, it depends on the study. So for people that don't know, again, depending on the type of research, there's very, very different power calculations that go into the stats behind how many people you need to be able to have to be able to trust the results that you're getting. Um, my, my line of research is looking a little bit different in terms of like specific biomechanics, and I am in the process right now trying to figure out how many subjects am I going to need? And is this going to take me, is this going to be a doable amount of time or is this going to take years and years and years? But that's, it's interesting to hear that you kind of, you went in with one view and you go, okay, so this didn't go exactly as we want. So we're going to be able to shift and be able to see, hey, okay, can we build on this? And that's what research has to do is we find things and you can't just go, okay, that's it. You have to go, okay, how are we going to build upon this and look at different things? I'm very this is slightly off topic. I'm very curious to know how with even like 250 and then up to 800, how did you get the shoes for this? Because I understand that you gave each person a shoe, correct? Or am I thinking about a different study? Yeah. So uh, in total, we conducted four trials um, on uh, shoe features and injury risk uh, with the same uh, partner. Um, and yeah, we had a... a, a collaboration agreement with the, the shoe manufacturer um, and uh, one of their main contribution of course was to provide the shoe for the study um, but I, I have to explain one uh, maybe a detail for the, for the first the first two studies actually we had a, a different approach which complicated a bit the, 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 the recruitment of the participant we first recruited the participant got some information like sex, uh, um, uh, body weight, um, running history, and so on. And then we we did a randomization based on these features to make sure that the group are well balanced. And then once we 
got this randomization, we knew which participant should receive what kind of uh, what type of shoe, and we ordered the shoe. So we ordered a specific shoe with a specific size for a specific uh, participant, and the, it has it had to be blinded. So it was the, the design was was to totally crazy. When we received the shoes, it, it was uh, so, so difficult to respect the rule to attribute the right pair and not mix the two models. It was really, really not, it, not necessarily complicated. <laughs> we changed the approach for the, for, the, for the last study because with a large number of participants, you can anticipate that randomness is strong enough and you can expect that the group will be well balanced in terms of different features we just actually discriminate between uh, men and women as anyway these are two different models so we had a stock and we we just had to to check that we still had enough pairs in every size before welcoming the participants to the this this sounds very expensive to get all of these but it sounds like you're working with a, a great company now, can you tell us anything about the properties of these shoes and if there is, are they similar at all to anything that's on the market or they were market, there were shoes on the market already? Um, it's a bit of a mix of them. Um, for some of the studies, we used uh, just a model available in the market, one of the models they, they have in the market and just change one property to, to, to have the two, the two versions. Uh, for other studies, we had to create prototypes. So for, for this study, um, the, um, the design of the shoe was very important. Um, so how did it, how did it work? We, um, the, um, the, the shoe manufacturer actually did a, a benchmarking work of the shoe uh, available in market in 2015. They did not test all of them, but they test a large uh, range of shoes. So they knew what were the cushioning properties of the shoe available in the market at that time. And uh, we had the, the aim to have to stay within this range of value, uh, but to have the largest difference as possible between the two shoe versions. So they created different prototypes. Then they tested the prototypes with the impactor, the standard test, and based on the results, we made the selection. Actually, we needed two rounds to get the, 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 the right prototype. And um, they gave me some information about um, the, sh the models that were close to the, to the, the prototypes we used. Um, so I had some notes here. So the soft shoe version was between the Adidas Boost and the Adidas Pegasus. Again, remember that these were the model, the model tested were uh, from the series in 2015. And the hard shoe had shock absorption properties close to the, I don't know the shoe, ASIC Super J33 and the Nike Free. Uh, the Nike Freeze actually had a soft material, but really uh, thin. So when you test it on, on the impactor, the, the, the cushioning was really limited. But it was still uh, softer than the Brooks uh, T7. I think it's, it's, it's quite well known about the, uh, 
the the um, uh, the runners as it's a typical racer shoe. So yeah, within the range of value of classical running shoe in the market, but close to the extreme. On uh, a uh, side note, for the if the Brooks team is listening, please bring back the T seven racer. That was an amazing shoe that I would love that a lot of people would love to see again. But that's that's a different story. So. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Amazing that you had a company that's willing to work with you and be able to create these prototypes because that that's quite expensive. I was, had the opportunity because we work with several different companies to ask, hey, what is that process like? To hey, if, if I was to do a study and I'd like you to switch something around, what does that cost? And the the company that told me goes, every time you make a small change in the last or the design and shape of the shoe. It can cost upwards of seven to eight thousand dollars just for one change. So the fact that you had now, correct me if I'm wrong, because that's what I was told. But that's amazing. You had somebody that would work with you on that. I don't know exactly the the, the cost, but I know that the most uh, costly part when designing new shoes is the um, it's open a new mold for the for the insole. So they were really worried about uh, when we discussed new designs, new prototypes, whether they have to open. New mold for the uh, for, for for the insoles. That's why, when possible, they try to start from an existing model. But in, in the, for the latest uh, study, they had to to create new prototypes. And um, uh, yeah, I, I guess it's a, it's a win-win situation. We want to do a good research. They want to um, uh, increase their knowledge on a specific topic. And I would say. I don't want to talk about this uh, shoe manufacturer, but what I really appreciate from them is that um, they are interested in the health of the runner first. And second, they always have respected our wish to do research. We don't, I mean, I'm not interested in, 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 in business and in, in making shoes. I'm just interested in, in knowing whether cushioning matter. That's it. And they understood that the design had to be uh, set up so that I can answer this question. Got it. So going back into talking about injury rates, right? So what do we what do we know currently? And you mentioned you referenced this a few times, but just for the listeners, as we get back into talking about where the study went, what is known about running shoes affecting injury rates in general? I, I would say first, uh, I already said that the number of studies on the topic was very limited. Maybe, I, I don't know, seven to ten. Uh, there were a few studies on uh, military uh, recruits, but it's to me it's totally out of topic because we know that um, uh, military uh, recruits do a lot of physical activity and exercise other than running. So they, they might use running shoes for other stuff and actually running activity may be only a limited part of the physical activity so we we never know whether the injury is related to running or related to another um, uh, activity it's also a very specific population usually quite active um, and so th th there are plenty many possible bias when looking at um, uh, at an army population um, so w when we specifically look at, look at um, uh, runners, um, so we did two studies on 
uh, cushioning with, I would not say a contradictory uh, result, but one of them had a limited uh, uh, statistical power. And the latest uh, studies show that, yes, cushioning uh, play a role in, uh, in injury prevention. It, in the, uh, so the results show that uh, greater cushioning helped to decrease the risk of injury. We did a, another trial on motion control system, which showed that um, the motion control system helped prevent injuries in those with uh, pronated feet, but it was not harmful for those with other foot type. Uh, we did a study on shoe drop, uh, where the main conclusion was that uh, globally there was no effect between, we test three different conditions in that study, but uh, there was no difference between the three conditions. However, when we, dis uh, when we um, uh, categorized the population in novice runners and more experienced runners, we observed that the injury risk was lower with the low shoe drop in the novice runners, but conversely, the injury risk was higher with these low shoe drop versions uh, in the more experienced runners. So it showed that the drop might play a role, but it's specific to the, uh, uh, the profile of the runners. Um, then there was um, a study on minimized shoes that showed that um, it might be actually a uh, not a good uh, idea to use minimized shoes when you when you are heavier. Actually, the the, the injury risk increased with um, with weight when using minimized shoes compared to control shoes. Um, then, yeah, there was another study. Um, uh, it was conducted earlier by uh, Ryan, I think, 2015 or 16 where he compared different um, minimal shoes, um, control shoes. And um, yeah, if I remember well, the conclusion is that minimal shoes maybe not recommended for the, in general for the, for the whole uh, population of uh, recreational runners. Oh, it was in female, female runners. Uh, yes, it was in females, yeah. Um, so, and it, this is really surprising. Um, I mean, there was a hype with uh, on the, on the uh, minimized shoes and actually to, to my knowledge there were there were only two studies that investigate the uh, association between kind of minimized shoes and injury risk in running so for the listeners be very very cautious right so again this the minimalist shoe stuff one of the biggest marketing things behind them was that oh it's going to de it's going to eliminate your injuries because you're running more naturally and that some of the research although con some things contradict it it's like we found that not necessarily to be true and it really depends on the population so be very cautious with some of the things that you're told just because there is some you know it's it's no fault the company they're trying to sell a product right and that's that's what business is but you have to be a little cautious with some of the claims that are made because oftentimes those claims are made far a long time before the research is actually caught to go, is this actually something that makes this kind of impact or not? I, try, I think that the industry tried to bring some novelty in the market. That's how they make their business. Right. Um, and we should not forget that 
the first aim of the industry is not to uh, protect the health of the athletes. The first aim is to sell products. And maybe the second aim is to help the uh, runners to um, improve their performance. I think that the health is not <laughs> one of the priority. And, uh, and that's, I guess, one of the reasons why we, we only have limited research on the, um, on the topic. Another aspect, and we addressed that with, in, a, in a paper, it was like a, not a comment or a narrative review in, in, a, in, a, in a journal that is not very popular, but we, we, we wrote this, um, this article with my former boss and friend, uh, Daniel Tyson, on um, the fact that we are a bit biased because most of the, stud the, the research on the, the running shoe is purely biomechanics. And it's a, a kind of shortcut. We do not investigate many labs, do not investigate how footwear impact uh, injury risk. They investigate how footwear influence biomechanics and potential uh, risk factors. Whether these biomechanical uh, variables are really risk factors, it's another topic. But I mean, there is a huge shortcut there. And, um, and I think that's one of the main bias. We, we extrapolate too easily the effect of a observed in the lab or, or, uh, the effect of a shoe feature on, on biomechanics to extrapolate that too easily to, to, to injury risk. It's really common when you read papers on biomechanics. It's challenging too in the biomechanics literature because we often, especially with biomechanics stuff, there's so much involved in testing. Oftentimes the sample size is also is fairly small, which is why when I'm hearing you talk about 250, 800 people, my eyes are just going, oh my goodness. I know the amount of time it takes, but that's you know, what it takes to make sure you have good research. Yeah, but, uh, To me, that's not an issue. And actually, we... we, we 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 observed that or we, we did the exercise in in our in our latest study we needed 800 runners to investigate the effect of the shoe future cushioning on injury risk uh, i mean to be able to define to identify a, a, a difference that is not too big um, the, the statistical power is always a a balance between a uh, number of participants and the the size of the difference that you are able to detect but for when we uh, tested the difference the effect of the running sh the shoe versions on biomechanics so we did uh, intra-individual comparisons we invited some participants to test the two pairs the two versions in the lab and based on the, um, uh, the results available in the literature, we did our sample size calculation. And the result was that we needed 40 of, oh, no, 39 participants. 839. So it, as you said, it purely depends on the question, the study design, the variable, the, the outcome of interest. So yeah, just show that the sample size just we have to be careful when it's not because the number is big that uh, it's enough or because it's small that it's not enough it we have to be very careful with the justification of the uh, for the sample size so speaking of of the subjects 
So your your recent study, you found that there's shoe cushioning does seem to influence injury risk in a certain population. Can you talk more about what the results of that was? And how and then the second follow-up question is how might we, those of us, and we talked about this being translational research, how might those of us in the community, whether it be physios, running specialty stores, the running community, how should we take that information and what do you think is the best use of it? Okay, so the, the main conclusion is that cushioning may be interesting, uh, an interesting preventive measure for some runners based on the results, mainly the lighter runners. But um, there is still so much work to be done. Um, first, the results should be confirmed, of course. Second, we only tested two shoe conditions or two cushioning levels. So the relationship between shock absorption properties and injury risk may actually not be uh, linear, but may have a U shape. So we still have to identify the sweet spot, the ideal, re- ideal re- range of values um, with regards to, um, to injury prevention. Uh, a third important point is that every runner is unique. So the sweet spot may be different uh, for each runner. We show that body mass is an important factor to consider, but uh, future studies should determine whether there are other relevant factors like running experience, uh, running technique, um, training habits. And um, cushioning may be uh, important for some types of uh, injury, but not relevant for others. So the question is, what are the main injury types that can be prevented with uh, more cushioning? It's still a big question mark. So you said, um, how can, talking about translational research, what can we do with these results? This is always a tricky question. And um, I always try to keep my research hat when uh, delivering message uh, to therapists, shoe sellers, or runners. Um, The first aim of the study was to generate knowledge on the topic, investigate the potential protective effect of, uh, of cautioning. And I anticipate that my answer is going to be disappointing, but the main message is it's too early to translate our finding into some guidelines or recommendations. But I try to please the audience and give a positive message uh, uh, to the end users. Um, I think the most straightforward impact of the study is for the shoe manufacturer. Uh, first, they should not be afraid of producing soft shoes. Um, and second, it's worth investigating further the relationship between cushioning and injury risk. There is a lot of work needed on that topic. Then, um, the shoe sellers. I think they might slightly adapt their approach. As, as you said earlier, uh, there was a popular belief that cushioning was uh, almost or only important for the heavier owners. Um, Actually, it might be important for lighter runners as well, or even more specifically for, for the lighter runners. And um, uh, yeah, we may say that so far we don't know exactly if, if we need, how we can adapt the level of cushioning for lighter and heavier runners, but we can say that based on the information, uh, there is no reason to say that uh, we need another level of cushioning for heavier runners than for lighter runners.
the message uh, to uh, to the runners um, is actually never listen to the others. <laughs> um, that's something I'm quite used to. <laughs> Uh, to saying to, to, to other runners uh, when I discuss this, this topic. Actually, what works for your friends or for an elite athlete, for the most popular runner on Twitter, it may not for, work for you. And I, I also lo- like the, the idiom, do not change a winning team. Or um, if it works, do not change it. I mean, if a runner wish to change for a new shoe brand or a new model, and in the absence of any arguments against cushioning, then they, they should consider uh, soft shoes. But otherwise, if they are happy with their shoes, there is no reason to change. Um, then the physical therapist. I think it's the, the, the trick here. Um, the relationship between shoe cushioning and specific type of injury remains quite speculative and theoretical. Um, I talked about our recent publications in um, um, in Frontiers, where we, we closed the loop. We showed the relationship between cushioning, decrease in impact force, and uh, decrease in injury risk. So um, I could say that when a clinician thinks that an injury may be caused uh, by impact force, then the cushioning properties of running shoes should be checked. Um, and the clinicians may also recommend uh, running at a lower speed because speed is the major determinant of uh, impact force. And they can also recommend running on softer surfaces like in the forest, for instance. So, Laura, thank you so much. So what I'm, what I'm hearing is that you know we've got research that's coming out and that we're seeing relationships here, but they still have to be solidified. So we all we need not that solidified isn't the right word, but we need more information. The biggest takeaway, what I'm what I'm also hearing for those of us in the clinical community, is yes, for and and runners out there is for specific types of injuries, there may be types of footwear that may be beneficial for that. But to say, oh, this one shoe can do everything is not valid. That is not how it works. And every single person is going to need a different shoe or might need a different condition or also might need to think about their training surface and other variables. And that might be a totally different need than their running buddy or their competitor. And this is something we talk about quite a bit is going, make sure you learn about your own body and make sure you figure out what works for you. And if you've got something that's working for you, you may not need to change. You may not need the newest, fanciest, whatever is the popular thing out there because th- there's always a new running fad. There's always something new coming out. If you're interested in it, that's fine. Just know that take, take make sure you take time to kind of explore it. But oftentimes, if, it's, if something's working for you and you're not having any injuries and things are going well, it may not be necessary to change. It doesn't mean you, don't, you, you can't change. It just means... From what we're, what we're looking at, if it's not broke, you know, don't fix it. Yeah, that's a like uh, quite a, a very good summary and, and uh, takeaway message. Um, and don't forget that you, you can also, of course, use different pairs of shoes uh, concomitantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you like testing new uh, fancy shoes, then you, you, you can buy the, the model and, and just try it on a short distance first and then 
uh, just compare when switching from one pair to another one depending on the type of sessions you you, you do and and then after a few few weeks i'm sure that uh, the, the runner will f easily have a, a global feeling about the shoe whether it's it's um he feels comfortable and the shoe match his running style or not um yeah it's it's still it's a question of feeling as you said um there, there are some piece of evidence that uh shoe features play, may play a role in, for injury prevention but it's far too early to 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 say how which kind of shoes which kind of feature may uh uh, sweet, bet, better, which kind of uh, runners, and how to prescribe running shoes for healthy runners or for injured runners. Well, we yeah. are not there <laughs> for sure. Yeah, the evidence in terms of prescribing that the, the evidence is still very much not where it needs to be for us to be able to say, hey, this is exactly what you need for this. So, no, again, that's where it comes into making sure that, you know. Don't be afraid to have multiple pairs. I know we, Laurent, your study on find, you know, the fact that having multiple pairs of shoes may may be beneficial for reducing injuries is something we reference all the time uh, at Doctors Running. But I'm also I'm sure that the shoe industry also like that too because it's like, oh, you can't buy more shoes; it'll be good. But Laurent, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate your time and know that your time is very valuable, especially with the amount of and the the amount and the quality of research that you're publishing. We cannot thank you enough. Um, just as you mentioned, there there wasn't a ton out there, and you have done a phenomenal job of adding to that and trying to push us forward and, and answering new questions. As, and as the as a runner and as also a, a junior researcher trying to figure this all stuff out is very inspiring, and we appreciate your time and your knowledge uh, on this podcast. Thank you very much for these kind words. Awesome. Is there any last words you think might be really important for some of the runners and clinicians out there in summary? Oh, I think I already talked a lot about different Got topics it. related to shoe features. Um, I hope that um, yeah, uh, there will be uh, future interesting studies on the topic that the industry will uh, invest more into the uh, athlete's health in general and that uh, Runners will keep this priority to enjoy running and 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 wait for the health rather than first uh, prioritize the the performance. Right, because we we also know there is a little relationship between longevity and consistency and performance as well. So if you can make sure you still enjoy it and you can stay healthy, you'll you will you may see improvements over time. So if that's that's patience, which can often be difficult but just like the research right we have to be patient because this stuff takes a lot of effort and time to get through and so there are people there are amazing people like laurent working on this it just takes some time and we're getting the stuff we need but there's always more research needed so laurent thank you so much again for your time and all of your information today it was awesome to be able to have you on hopefully we'll have you on again as time permits thanks again Hey there, everybody. I'm back. It's Nate, and I am actually now sitting down with Matt. Uh, we are here to reflect on his interview with Dr. Malazo. And so, Matt, I just want to hear from you. As you've been able to reflect on your interview, what have been some big-picture takeaways that you've, that you've had or you've thought about? So I think the big-picture stuff that I thought about first was 
honestly, I'm just incredibly impressed that Dr. Malazzo is able to do this research. I think the amount of work that goes into it, I wasn't fully aware of. And so knowing, hey, if you have 800 subjects, which is very difficult to do, by the way, in this kind of research, it took three plus years to get this stuff done, right, to get this data in. So I got to give a lot of respect to both him and his team that went through and got this. And I hope the listeners can also give a lot of respect knowing it is really hard to do this research. If you want to know why there's not a lot of footwear research, there's a lot of variables that are hard to control and also takes a lot of time to have the subjects you need to get this. So full respect on that. I think the other global thing I've really thought about is he mentioned that the footwear company that he's working with, which he didn't mention, and I, I totally understand even off air, that the company, they gave him 800-something prototypes? Like, that's that's amazing. And right. the fact that there's a company that's this invested in trying to understand how can we figure out how these shoes are affecting the human body and then letting him share it and publish it is a really big deal. And I, I know right. there's a lot of footwear people and people in the industry that listen to this. And I want to encourage all of you. First, but before I say that, I know business is hard, right? The sh- selling shoes is a business, right? You want to try to, you know, make the best product. You got to market it. And I know there's research divisions in each company, but I want to encourage companies to start thinking about maybe putting that into publishable research, going, can we actually do this well enough so we can not only defend what we're doing, but actually see if we can start continue to design products that truly, dare I say, try to reduce injury risk. And I, I hesitate to say that because I've in the past mentioned and talked with, you know, Simon Bartold comes to mind here going, can we really make shoes that decrease injury rates? Like we haven't seen injury rates change in, you know, for the how many ever many like decades it's been that, you know, people have been running right. recreationally. At but, a minimum, at a minimum, yeah. hopefully the research would help us know how to pair people better. Maybe right. that's it Less versus one shoe fixing the problem. It's how does a shoe affect the body? And as we right. learn that, we can do a better job getting the right. shoes that we want. Yeah. So I guess I want to encourage people, to st- companies to start thinking about really investing in research and then being able to put it out there and going, yeah, I know this is a business, but why don't we try to elevate everyone as a result and share some of these things? You don't have to share your exact design, but just going, hey, this might help people. And I think it would be good because, you know, the more people that stay healthy, right? Mm -hmm. The more people that enjoy it, the more people that are going to stay running and keep purchasing running shoes. So there is a benefit to this. But I want to encourage the industry to start thinking, you know, a little more holistically about how can we really help and then also show this, you know, add more to our knowledge base, especially the consumer. So. One other thing I wanted to touch on before we completely wrap up is, you know, the one study you dove in a little bit more talked about two prototypes. Um, mm-hmm. Can you can you recap kind of what those shoes were akin to that's in the market and, uh, and then talk about its applicability a little bit from your perspective? If I remember correctly, one of the biggest similarities was to the Nike Pegasus is what he yep. said. And the for the for the for for the uh, firmer shoe kind of that right. the overall global lower global stiffness or higher global stiffness was that close to a Nike free. And it sounds like these shoes were based off of currently available shoes in the market. It's although it sounds like they're in probably 2015. more in Europe in 2015. Yes. Right. Yep. So 
I think there it is pretty applicable. There's always a limitation, right? Because when you make start start making tweaks to running shoes in this situation, if you can, right? And that's that's a whole nother conversation. There's always some degree of like, eh, how much can we apply? And that's why I think we have to take a global view of this. So I would say it's probably pretty applicable just given the fact that he said, yes, these are based on commercially available models, right? There's They didn't do anything absolutely crazy to them. So I'd say it's pretty applicable. Is it 100%? No. And when it comes to research, like when you need to control that many variables, it's never 100% applicable, but that's just right. the nature of the game. So to answer yep. your question, it sounds like it's it's pretty applicable. Yeah. And I thought what was interesting too is the, because the the higher global stiffness was kind of that Nike Free. He re- mentioned another Brooks shoe, I think, that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Uh, but I, can't I can't remember what that was. Yeah. Because you kind of said, bring it back, I think. And then the the higher, yeah. the the lower global stiffness was, do you remember what it was? Yeah. It was the ST. It was the uh, Racer ST, I believe. Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the other, the one that was the lower global stiffness was, he said, similar to Adidas Boost was what he said. Yes. And I so. That. I think something I thought about was it's not like saying you can say, hey, you can run in the Mizuno Wave Rider versus a Hoka Bondi, and that's going to be like the threshold of when does it become too firm or too low stack, that wasn't established. They're saying if you take two big ends of the spectrum and you match that two body mass index, because that was the other part of it. um, So it, you know, there's... It's applicable, but for the right people in the right situation with the right shoe differences. Um, right. And we don't know that cutoff point yet, which I thought was I thought was interesting. That is interesting. So, what about uh, any other reflections that you have before we wrap up or anything else you want to share based on your conversation with him? I think this is the perfect time for me personally to have this conversation with somebody who is such a well-established and experienced researcher. I think so I just passed my candidacy um, and and all the didactic stuff in my PhD and I'm getting I'm in the lab right as we speak getting ready to try to figure out how am I going to do this, right? So I've already written a prospectus going, okay, this is what I plan to do and that's going to evolve as I get in there and going, okay, what's what is actually realistic and what does this look like? And hearing Dr. Malazzo talk about a lot of this stuff going, you know what? There are certain things you can do and there's other things, you know, you just got to be able to keep moving forward because I don't remember if he said this on air or off air, but one of the comments is like, dude, footwear research is not a great option for a PhD uh, Hmm. candidate or student. Like there's too many variables you got to get through. You just got to learn the research and hearing him talk about these foundational things, you know, making sure that the basic components of research are there, that the basic methodology is there was really inspiring to go, you know what? I got to pull up my book again. And go really make sure everything is solid because that's where all of this stuff is based off of. It's It reminds me of clinical practice of PT where you get all fancy with these crazy exercises and concepts, but at the end of the day, it all comes down to foundational concepts of anatomy, kinesiology, the nervous, all this kind of stuff. And it's the same thing with research is the key I got was master the basics. And a lot of the stuff is hard to do, but be patient is probably the other thing and really make sure you've got the foundational components and just keep putting the work in, you know, this stuff takes time. Good research takes time and it's often far behind what's being put out in the market, but that's the way it's always is. We're trying to, that's because we're asking questions. It takes time to make a study that's good enough that we can be confident in what we're finding. Awesome. Well, Matt, thanks for getting up at 5am to conduct that interview 
And uh, again, we're going to wrap things up here, but the subjective, again, is to hear from you all and to hear who do you want us to interview. Again, if it's an athlete, if it's another researcher, if it's someone from a certain running shoe company, let us know. We want to know who you want us to try to get on here, and we'll do our best to make it happen. Um, As always, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing this podcast um, on whatever platform you're listening to and then also check out what we're doing on instagram facebook twitter etc etc and we hope you all have a great day morning evening whenever you're listening bye